back. Oh, anyway, so you, you talked to me about Star Trek. Yeah, well, I'm a bit of bit of a fan. Got introduced to it when I was really, really young. Yeah. Um, yeah, really, really enjoy the series and um, haven't really been enjoying the latest couple of series that they've been chucking out at the moment. Why is that? I don't think the writers understand what what made the show really good a couple decades ago, and they're trying to make this facsimile version of it with all... It looks like Star Trek, but it's got nothing of the... what actually made it special, unique to begin with. Sounds like... Um, like what the, uh, the BBC did with Doctor Who? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, although with that, with that... Doctor Who is a bit of a weird case because every single show... Every single version of the show iteration has kind of done its own thing every, every time. Uh, and they've kind of just reset the clock. And they get they get good doctors and bad doctors. What what's weird though is the act right now the actors are getting are copying a lot of the heat for the show not being great. Yeah, but it's I, the writers, I, isn't it? it? A, it's the writers. B, it hasn't been good for I think two and a half doctors now. Really, in that, that's my personal opinion. Yeah, it's not it's not just because they gender swap the doctor all of a sudden. It's that the writers don't know what to do yeah. with their character. So, and that's really, it's, it's resulted in bad storytelling. I sort of had that experience with the Star Wars stuff. Like oh, yeah. the original trilogy, as well as the pre-trilogy, the, sorry, the, the prequel trilogy, yeah. they, were, they weren't too bad. Like the prequels sort of grow on you after a while. That's something funny. How in the world did Disney buy Star Wars and then get us to a point where we would sit around a table and go, the prequels weren't that bad. <laughs> and it is oh, it's that whole idea of the Mary Sue that um, was that Ray can do everything like, like Luke goes through training yeah. in his first one episode yeah. in episode four and in episode five mm. you know he goes through trials gets hands chopped off goes through a whole bunch of training with mm-hmm. Yoda yeah but Ray just magically knows how to fly the Millennium Falcon the Falcon yeah she knows how to repair it she uh, she knows how to use the force she knows how to wield lightsaber she knows how to resist Jedi yeah. mind tricks. Pretty much it was, here is an empty shell of a character and we'll just give this character a whole ton of skills and attributes yeah. so that they can be equipped for the story, forgetting this this character needs, well, this person needs to be a, char- a relatable character that you can root for as they go through their journey. Yeah. Like, gen- like in this case, gender doesn't matter because, again, being, a star- being someone who's interested in Star Trek and Star Wars both, I've looked. I've, I've read read a whole ton of different stories, and there's a lot of really interesting male and female characters in that universe in yeah. both. So it's not a only male only men can be Jedi or use lightsabers. Like that doesn't actually apply. Yeah, Rey isn't unrelatable because she's female. No, right? Because that's what Disney would say. Yeah, of course, of course. She's, it's a bad argument though. She's unrelatable because. There is no suffering. There yeah. is no. She just magically knows how to do it. Like yeah. you know, Inspector Gadget or Superman. Mm. You know, Inspector Gadget yeah. has a, a tool for everything. Yeah. Well, well, Superman. You, you raise a good point with Superman. The reason that there was, a, I was reading an interesting article a little while ago of how Superman is a difficult character to write for. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's that they don't. People don't know how to write for him. Because essentially he has every single skill and ability to beat any beat and solve every problem. And the only thing that can stop him is kryptonite. Well, they that introduced has become the joke. They introduced the weakness of kryptonite because, yeah, because Superman, like how do you beat Superman became boring. Yeah. So 
the prot. So, so I, they, introduce, I, I, they introduce weakness to yeah, make it more interesting. To make it more interesting. Uh, my, one of my one of a really interesting um, series, uh, Superman story I remember reading, I can't remember the details of what it was, but essentially it's where he lost his powers. And he had to figure out life without his powers. And that made him that much more interesting because he had to go through trial. He had to go through struggle. Well, made him more human. Yeah. And that well, that struggle going through that that um, adversity and him growing and becoming a better person from that experience made him interesting. Okay. Yeah. So going back to the original Star Trek question, yeah, yeah. How, how's, how are these two things formally different? So how is... Uh, how is the original Star Trek? You said there was... Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the writers sure. in the original Star Trek knew what they're talking about yeah, and yeah. a theme, I guess, yeah. and a message. Yeah. And in the new Star Trek, I don't know, is it just over CGI and everything? Like that? It was over CGI. But it, was, it was also that one thing that... What were they missing? Well, yeah, one, one thing that was missing with between Next Generation Deep Space Nine was that it was doing, it was writing clever and in, they, the writers were clever, writing clever and interesting science fiction stories. Which I think that science fiction as a as a genre examines human issues, examines humanity, yeah. and different conditions of what it means to be human, how you can solve or work with different problems. But it's in the futuristic, in, a, in the future, in the far future context, so that you kind of are separated. You can deal with issues like sexism or racism or the value of life and things like that. You can, do, you can deal with those issues and explore them in interesting ways, in these themes. But because they're in the future, they're not close to home there. So they're not, they're not in your face and you can kind of, you can look at those stories and get and uh, experience and explore what, and have those conversations without rejecting them out of hand because they're going, that's too much luck. It's, it's what our current status quo is. Go forward to these new, the new shows that I've been writing and they're not, doing, they're not exploring these, these same themes or ideas. They're just going, hey, here's a phaser. Here's a warp engine. Here's Captain Kirk. And it's, got the, it's wearing the skin almost of what the writers think Star Trek is about. And it was never about Kirk and Spock and Captain Picard and the Enterprise. It was what these characters and what these things were doing. Anyway, back to the podcast. Indeed. Welcome back to the podcast, myself, Johnny, and Pat. Pat, how are you going? Oh, doing pretty good. All right. Not en- enough uh, geeking out of uh, Star Trek and Star Wars for one day? Yeah. <laughs> there was a time long ago where the average American would, could go about his daily business hardly aware of the government, especially the federal government. As a farmer, merchant, or manufacturer, he could decide what, how, when, and where to produce and sell his goods, constrained by little more than market forces. Just think, no farm subsidies price supports, acreage controls, no federal trade commission, no antitrust laws, no interstate commerce commissions. As an employer, employee, consumer, investor, lender, borrower, student, or teacher, he could produce largely according to his own lights. Just think, no National Labor Relations Board, no federal consumer protections law, no Security and Exchange Commission, no Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, 
no Department of Health and Human Services, lacking a central bank to issue national paper currency, people commonly used gold coins to make purchases. There were no general sales tax, no social security taxes, no income taxes. Though governmental officials were as corrupt then as now, maybe more so, they had vastly less to be corrupt with. Private citizens spent about 15 times more than all governments combined. Those days, alas, are long gone. Now in virtually every dimension, our lives revolve within rigid limits circumscribed by governmental authorities. We are constrained continually and on all sides by big government. Regulations cluttered a landscape. Governmental spending equals almost four-tenths of the gross national product. So I want to ask you, Pat, do you feel the squeeze of government on you? It's an interesting question. Do I, do I feel the squeeze on me personally or in more of the the picture that you've painted here? Because yeah, this, this is an American quote, isn't it? Yes. Talking about American government. Living in Australia, I can definitely say the experience is very different where, yes, we have a federal government. Yes, we have a state government. I certainly think that those governments are much too big than what they should be. I think we could make them smaller. But do I feel like there's oppressive push down? Not necessarily. Yeah. I would say, and again, I think that's be- I think that's because we we're living in a country that has kind of it's a couple I'd say a couple generations, a couple decades behind where America is at today. Yeah. So we haven't seen the full impact of what this quote is talking about in America at the moment. But take it back to you know when he said there was a time when there was none of these mm. institutions. Yeah. Would you say that, put yourself in that guy's mm. shoes back in whatever, 1800, 1800s, 1800s, 1900s, mm. and compared to now in the 2000s? Well, that's, that's the interesting thing. Is it's, a, it's a give and pull between having security and freedom. And it's, it's finding that happy balance in the middle of that. What the picture that's described here is zero security. It's like, you are in the world on your own. It's up, up to you, pretty much. Part of me would go, yes, that's a that's innately a good thing. But with that said, if something bad happens, it's good to have some level of safety net or security there. You can't just have, I don't think it's good to have this, if you think of it like a seesaw, totally tilted towards absolute 100% freedom. But at the same token, you don't want to wait to the other side of total control. So it's finding that happy balance, I think. Do you think this is a fair comparison to make to Australian government or Australian system? As as I say, I don't think I don't think that the picture that's painted here is where, especially where it talks about the almost the oppressiveness of big government in that last in that last paragraph. I don't think that that really is fair to tar to, to tar that with what we have right now in Australia. In America, absolutely, it's a bit of a mess of where. They're operating off this limited government foundation where each of the states are essentially operating, should be operating as individual entities, but you've got this overarching federal government calling shots. That's not how the system was designed or set up. And that's where you're seeing a lot of cracks and a lot of issues forming. But in Australia, we've kind of been, I think, a bit of a merger of our governmental system that we've inherited from Britain with some of the ideals and principles that we've inherited and observed in America, and we've kind of merged them together into a bit of a hybrid. So we've kind of taken the best of both worlds in a way, which has its pros and cons. Like, I 
can certainly say, I don't think that we're living under this great oppression or anything in Australia. Sure, it could it can be better in some in some ways here and there, but it's not a this is bad. Yeah. So you know what I just read is a passage from uh, Robert Higgs' book mm-hmm. Crisis and Leviathan, and he's one of the economics uh, professors which, which looks at how government grows over time, and he links it with a with the idea of crisis. Whenever mm-hmm. there's a crisis occurs, then government gets bigger. Yeah. But it never really sort of shrinks back post-crisis mm. and so what ends up is like it snowballs gets bigger after each crisis and then all of a sudden you know you get to this point you're like how do we get to this point where we, i want to start a new business i want to do some trading but then yeah. i have to follow this tick box tick box mm. tick box go to this government department to get this approval done without and then i can do my business yeah. you know how did we get to this point uh he talks about the he calls this the ratchet and this mm. is you know based off a, a there's two other British economists which they were trying to do with um, food shortages and famine mm. uh, but but basically it ratchets up government spending ratchets up but never quite is able to go the other direction go back to zero yeah, because you're locked in yeah. after one turn yeah so rotate click rotate click you can't go backwards and, and so after each crisis mm. the authority and well the scope of government's effective authority over Mm -hmm. economic decision-making expands and it also explains why retrenchment is never complete. Mm -hmm. Um, So government is permanently bigger Mm -hmm. than it would have been pre-crisis. So I'll just keep uh, keep reading. So expansion phase of the ratchet reflects the decisions of a quasi-autonomous government responding to an insistent but ill-defined public demand that the government do something about a crisis. Whatever the policy adopted, however, costs must be borne by people outside the government. The greater are the costs, the less willing is the public to tolerate them. When people are burdened too heavily, their resistance jeopardizes not only the policy, but in a normally operating representative democracy, the government itself. Anticipating such reactions, the government takes steps to conceal the true cost of its policy. Most importantly, it substitutes a cost-hiding, commanding-control system of resource allocation for the cost-revealing market system and its utterly visible measuring rod of money. The incompleteness of the retrenchment phase of the ratchet is usually explained as the product of the politics of entrenched bureaucrats, their clients, and connected politicians, the so-called iron triangles. An explanation is valid but incomplete. It accounts for only a part of big government it can and should be supplemented by a partial theory of ideological change. And uh, what I have here is the graph from the book. It talks about how much has government grown, and it has percentage of GNP, gross national product, on the y-axis, and the years from uh, 1900s to 1984. So you can okay. see there's two... Uh, so the, the title is, you know, government spending, uh, that is brackets, federal, state, mm. and local on budget for final goods and services as a percentage of GNP. Hmm. So, so I can see two spikes here. Two spikes here. Where do these? What, what do you think these look like? So, well, ma- massive, massive increase in government spending in the years after World War One, and then in the middle of World War Two. So obviously that makes sense because in World War One, America kind of took a back seat to the conflict until the latter, the latter end, mm-hmm. uh, where there was a massive resurgence essentially, of America 
post-World War One, and uh, obviously they were much more heavily involved in the middle of the World War Two after Pearl Harbor. Mm. So massive ratcheting up of spending there. Yeah. And, and where, where, do you, where would you describe the ratchets occurring? Like you see a, what is that, a very benign slope of what, two degrees or something like that? Thereabouts, yeah. And then it just then goes, it spikes. it spikes up to like 60 degrees or something. Which, which again, it does make, it does make sense because whenever any nation goes to war, they're going, okay, we need to realign our economy to be more efficient and to uh, reduce inefficiencies and be the most productive. Otherwise, we will lose the, the, uh, the conflict. Yeah. The question, though, and I think the point that's being raised in this book is that, okay, once the crisis has been resolved, the immediate crisis resolved, you would assume that it would then go back to zero. Or no. you go back to, back to what it was pre-crisis. And I think the argument, the argument that's being made here is that doesn't, that never happens. No. Um, so you see, you know, so again, seven, and you can see that, and you can see that in the in the numbers where yeah, seven percent pre World War One, then mm. the highest in World War One, we twenty three percent goes back down, but never quite go back down to seven yeah. percent. It goes more like eight nine percent. Mm. The New Deal goes up to like fifteen percent. World yeah. War Two is like forty seven percent, and just it never it can never go back down to like seven yeah. percent, right? So government yeah. spends a lot more now than mm. back in World War One. Yeah. And then if I go down to this next figure, you know, all government employee, all government civilian employees as a percentage of civilian labor force, 1900, 1984. And you can see, you know, on the y-axis, it's percentage. And then on the x-axis, it's the years. And you can see, you know, if the previous diagram talks about money spending, and then this diagram talks about people involved in government. And there's also that same sort of similar spikes occurring. Yeah, I tried to uh, look up something for Australia. <laughs> oh yeah, how'd you go? No, it, it doesn't. They haven't revealed that. No, like nothing is revealing as like 1900, 1984. But yeah. if you go from like well, late 2000s or late, mm. uh, I guess post GFC to now, then it has something. But yeah. it doesn't have that World War One, World War Two kind of thing. Yeah. So that's, it's, also, it's also I think that's also because of World War One, we were still heavily attached to Britain. That data. Wouldn't probably wouldn't even reveal that much, anyway. So, but would you presume it's a similar sort of ratcheting as well? Similar, but similar, yeah. But probably to less degrees as well, yeah. And why would you say it's less? Why would I say it's less? Yeah, less to the less to the US because our we weren't leading the conflict. We weren't uh, in a leadership position. We were supporting Britain in World War Two. We were supporting our out the um. Britain and America and our other allies in the conflict, but we were not for, uh, shouldering the majority of the burden, Finan- financially or militarily. And we have a very small... Yeah. Like if you if you tutored up that small population of bureaucrats, then mm. you produce nothing. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no. so, so what is the theory that Robert Higgs uh, presents? And it's that it's first, um, ideologies develop, but have to exist ahead of time and gain popularity. You can't just... So they have to have been created, yeah. but they also need to have like massive momentum mm. and antonym ideas of the mainstream and the public. If they never... If they're just hidden somewhere on like, you know, on the internet, on like, you know, some weird forum, then mm. it, it's not sufficient. Uh, the next one is crisis is the engine. So it is a catalyst, right? Yeah. It propels the social change according to the new ideology. So... 
it presents the opportunity for people to say, oh, it's a crisis. We've got to do something about it. As uh, one American politician once said, never waste a good crisis. And uh, three, something bad has should have happened that the existing system can't handle. Yeah. And therefore, it is resolved, I use resolved in quotation marks, with a new ideology, which is seeking to cons- control and also concentrate authority. So we'll start off with, um, I guess in this episode, probably look at two case studies, mm-hmm. so which is the 1893s, uh, 1893 crisis as well as World War I. So 1893 crisis. So and it's, it's basically, I'm using this, this case study, or he, Robert Higgs uses this case study to show an example where the ideology is not strong enough or popular enough to incite demand from yeah. the government. And so the prevailing you know, government held a very conservative view of the economy and maintained mm. the status quo. It didn't seize opportunity of the crisis to increase scope of authority. And so therefore, crisis by itself doesn't spawn a bigger government. You need to have that idea as well mm. to go hand in hand for it to change. So what happened? So you had a possible move from capitalism towards socialism. And this is talking about the 1890s. Uh, and you had... Uh, heavy government intervention, you know, legislation blocked by the executive, by mm. the president and his administration. Um, so I guess to paint the picture for you, it's, you know, after the Civil War, mm. uh, with increased living standards, uh, knowledge, life expectancy, yep. we had uh, income growth, and we also had increased urbanization of transportation, mm. right? You had the railways mm. being developed. Yeah. And, and most of those measures were, in some major part, government-led. Yeah. And, and, and that was, I think that it's also important to tap into what is government, but it is a group of people coming together to then in a in a government in our call it our democratic society that we've we've assembled for ourselves, it's where we have elected representatives. The people are then electing peop other members of this of that of their societal circle to go and make the decision decisions on part on behalf of the whole. So that's where a lot of these improvements are coming from. But I think the what I'm hearing here is the one of the key arguments or issues is that the control the control or the decisions that are being made are too expansive. Yeah. Yeah. So continuing on, like mm. um you had the rise of these uh, great corporations. So you had mm. the railways, you had the mining companies, right? Mm. Because the railways are being li- lined up across yeah. the country. And so these were your I guess these are the big tech of yeah. that time because they are leading the way with technology mm. and also connecting people, right? Yeah. Mining companies feed the railways mm. with steel or coal. Yeah. Uh, you have General, you know, General Electric by um, mm. Thomas Edison. You have the Standard Oil by Rock- John Rockefeller, mm. and uh, you know he was notorious for having you know com- very high competition and taking takeovers and mergers. Yeah. And so you know with the these developments of big corporations, you have, you know, wealthy, super wealthy people. Yeah. Super super wealthy, super poor. Yeah. On a scale. Yeah. So the public became really skeptical and, and distrust these corporations, mm. especially, you know, small businesses, uh, farmers and labor unions. Yeah. Because now you have um, monopoly powers of these mm. corporations. Yeah. And then they're sort of seeing corp- uh, corruption. So seeing corporations and governments go hand in hand. Yeah. I know with the with the railways, for example, there were deals being done between the railway companies, the, the larger ones, and the government to restrict access, going, only this big company can, can lay their railway tracks in this particular area, and it cuts off a small railway company from getting ahead. 
So that you you could look at, especially this, we're talking about the Reconstruction era, so post Civil War America. You could look at that as this this massive explosion of capitalism. It's also a level of crony capitalism, though, which I think is the the bad or the darker kind of capitalism that can emerge out, where you're using the boot of the government to crack down on your competition to get ahead, as opposed to you're offering a better product at it's more efficient, cheaper, better for the consumer. You're just using the government to as a as a bludgeoning tool to keep your competition at bay, mm. which isn't how cap, pure, the pure form of capitalism is supposed to run where the where everything is a level playing field yeah and so you know going back you have big moves you know you had strikes by organized by these labor unions yeah. because now you know people are learning how to unionize and leverage and using their i guess um collectivization collective bargaining, bargaining collective to uh ask for more money mm. right and then so the big and city go on strikes and then yeah. they, but then the big businesses use courts to fight back against the Labor unions. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in one particular bit, there was 1892, a strike occurred by the silver miners, and a battle broke out with the strike strikers and the strike breakers, which left 16 dead and 60 wounded. Mm. Uh, in June 26th of 1892, a strike occurred by the Great Railway Union against pulling cars. All strikers were fired and replaced by non-union workers, then 60,000 railway workers around Chicago went on strike. Federal intervention that the troops being sent, 20 people died, 2,000 railway cars and property destroyed, mm. 14,000 troops and militia were sent. But public opinion still approved of the federal response, of mm. the President Cleveland response. Right. And then another one was uh, income tax was being raised to legislation. Opponents were, you know, Green Party, Farmers <laughs> Alliances, unions. They were seeing it as a wealth redistribution as well as class legislation, again, targeting the rich people. Right. Uh, so the quote from the book, by modern standards, the income tax of 1894 set a very low rate and affected only a tiny proportion of the population. It extracted from an individual taxpayer 2% of the income. 2% tax, yeah. wow. <laughs> Defined to include gifts and inheritances in excess of $4,000. Gosh. <laughs> With that said, $4,000 in 1900. Uh... 1800s 19th century that is that is still quite a large sum of money yeah i'm trying to figure out was that what half a million i'm i'm tempted i'm, I'm tempted to say about a, about quarter two hundred fifty thousand two hundred fifty thousand dollars quarter of a million yeah something on that ballpark in in those figures which funny enough two hundred fifty thousand is on average a household income of two working working people so uh continuing from the quote from a corporate taxpayer it took two percent of the firm's entire profits that is the $4,000 exemption did not apply to corporations. Mm. And so, you know, this uh, legislation to bring in income tax was brought to the Supreme Court attention. And he asked, is it legislation, Mm. you know, regulating Mm. rich people or is it a tax? And so it it was argued by a clever lawyer, Mm. Joseph Coate, if I pronounce that correctly, that that it is a tax infringing of property rights. And he says, uh, quote, the income yielded by property is substantially indistinguishable from the property itself. Hence, a tax on the income is equivalent to a tax on the property, and thus both are direct taxes. Yep. And uh, in May 20, 1895, by a 5 to 4 majority, the court declared the entire income tax law unconstitutional. 
So yeah, I was defeated. Yeah. Two percent tax. They fought over this with the Supreme Court. <laughs> and how much tax is it in America? Like thirty percent. Thirty percent. Yeah. Yeah. Similar to Australia. Uh, around about the same mark. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was looking at that recently, actually. They. Uh, yeah. It's about about thirty percent. I would love to pay two percent tax. I, I would too. Yeah. Well. Well, that's the interesting thing is the more money that a government, any government, has to play with, they're, they're inevitably going to spend it. They're going to want to spend it. So you hand it back. <laughs> well, I would I would argue going, actually, what we should do is, okay, force the governments to live within their means. You cut cut taxes, and they are then forced to reprioritize what they want to spend their money on. Yeah, now you're thinking too much like private business. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a give and take, though. But, well, private business has an operating margin to go yeah. on. Yeah. And they generate profit. Yeah, off that. Yeah, that they can then spend in the next year. How, do you, how does that equate to public, you know, how is operating margin equivalent for the public service or mm. how is a profit? Unfortunately, because the public service doesn't produce a profit. No, it's, <laughs> Unfortunately. A, it's a capability and yeah. also winning votes. Mm. Mm. Which again is half, is half the issue is that if you're using taxpayer money as a bargaining tool to get elected, you're not actually doing anyone a service. No. Well, you're doing a service to the majority the people who would vote for you, the, so which which essentially is a small minority, it's a subsection of the populace that you want to win their vote. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit, of, it's a bit of a mess. But so we used to also have the gold standard, and there was yeah. also another move to go away from the gold standard to the silver, which was prevented by Cleveland. In uh, quote from the books, in the 1890s, ideology decisively influenced the governmental response to multifarious national emergency. The dominant ideology held that less government is better than more, except, and it is, a critically important exception, where extraordinary action is required to maintain law and order, including the monetary order of the economy. So we kept the gold standard. We didn't move to silver mm. because the president at that time believed that you, it's not of the government's a responsibility to keep intervening in everyone's lives. Yeah. Same to do with money. Except unless you're in a labor union. <laughs> <laughs> hey, logical logical inconsistency in our politicians is not a prerequisite. I guess the takeaway points I got, you know, ideology has to be in the heads of the popular masses mm. and authority. So President Grover Cleveland didn't yeah. have that ideology. People were content with the system. Mm. Uh, the masses were not willing to bear the costs of having these taxes. The crisis needed to take place as a catalyst and engine excuse to expand mm. authority, but it wasn't seized upon. And so you, you didn't have that change. Yeah. However, these next other... It's setting the stage. ...case studies set the stage. And that's yeah. the turning point because from then on, we see that ratcheting going. Well, you go a century back and you've got Ben... I think it was Ben Franklin saying, we've given you... We've given the people freedom. He's talking to the people. We've given you freedom... Now it's your job to keep it. Yeah. And I, I, might, I might have got the quote mixed up, but essentially the, that point there is that the, set, the stage has been set where the Constitution has been written, you have the Bill of Rights, you have the Declaration of Independence, you have these foundational documents that create definitions and a framework for a more freer government. But it's, to, it's after that point, the people who are electing the politicians, they then are the ones who are responsible for keeping that same level of freedom because you can only go back along the sliding scale you can only go back towards more a more oppressive government after that after you've got to call it 
more freedom, well, essentially more, um, being more free, you can only go back towards more secu- more security. I remember just skit by is it like whose line is it anyway, and they yeah. pretend to be like you know Scottish people. Oh yeah, Braveheart kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, you know, one guy goes, I want my freedom, and then the other guy goes, I don't want my freedom. <laughs> uh, I I wonder if that's the default human nature that we don't really want freedom. We don't want to take risks or responsibility. Yeah, we want other persons to take care that, of us. That's why I don't I don't see it as a binary freedom or slavery. Well, it's freedom versus not freedom. Yeah, call it that. Yeah, freedom or not freedom. It's not. It's not a binary of one. You have one or you have the other. It's a sliding scale, and that's why I don't think that at, that pure absolute freedom is the solution because then you've got everyone doing whatever they want, and on, and when you di- when you dig a little bit into that philosophy, you realize there's a lot of inherent flaws in there. So you need to have some level of backup or security or a role that government fills but it needs to be it needs to be on that sliding scale yeah our job as citizens of a of of australia of a nation is to figure out what what is an acceptable balance between the two that we are happy uh to go with Mm. and then once we've determined within our own minds this is where we want to go as a nation then you'll find you need to find then we need to find our politicians or leaders within the community that, again, share those same ideals and share those same values, like what you were talking about before, a common ideology. And then, and then that is how you can then change the country towards this other vision. Yeah, and, that, and that's how it's worked for centuries and for centuries and centuries, all throughout human history, all throughout all different societies, not just in Australia, America. We often talk about those two examples, but... All over the world, every time people have come together under common, under common purpose, that's that's how things how change is instituted. All right, moving on to the second case study, which is the Progressive Era, as served up by historians, which is eighteen nineties to nineteen twenties, and it includes World War One. So again, you have a similar public narrative, right? You know, it's the small versus big business, it's the poor versus rich, you know, mm-hmm. Robin Hood versus the big guy. Yeah. Sheriff of Nottingham or Prince or Prince John? Prince John. <laughs> so yeah, the Democrat Party was determined to introduce tax to you know the crimes of corruption mm. against big corporations from these from the little guys. We you know Democrat Party wants to pretend they're well, I, I guess you could I don't know if it's pretend, but they like to take on the you know, champion the causes of the small businesses, mm. but they don't understand you know is it why why the big businesses are so wealthy? Is it because you know that they can. Because they have a bigger uh, economies of scale, mm-hmm. then they can generate, uh, produce more, more stuff, yep. and therefore at a, at a low, lower cost, and therefore mm-hmm. they can compete better mm-hmm. to the small guy who has to you know produce stuff maybe by hand or by a small number of labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also don't understand the risk take by the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, you, you got to be aware that the corporations now are different from the corporation beforehand. You know, uh, you know, in today's culture. And I'm talking about 2000s, you know, corporations and government like to work hand in hand. Yeah. But we talk about the 1890s period, big corporations then were very skeptical of big government because mm-hmm. of what we've seen in the 1890s, yeah. right? The caused by the, the, the crackdowns. The, yeah. Well, the crackdowns, you had the income tax laws against mm-hmm. the corporations. So again, so government goes hat hat in hand, going, "Can you please give us two yeah. percent?" So there's no, no there's no military industrial complex, there's no big pharmacy, no big tech. Yeah. Um, none of these, none of these great, almost 
institutions that have been built up as with the impression that they are strong, yeah, they haven't been set up yet. Mm. Yeah, but but this time, you know, this time, similar situation, but people have learned from the mistakes mm. of all these legislation failings. Mm. They're now trying to learn and get to power and then also put these uh, taxes out. So, you know, from the Democrat side, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt, and he came and introduced the income tax. Mm. And so, response to the, the original case, so in response to the Pollock case, right, so Congress had to levy a tax that would need to sign a value against each state. That was how it sort of got, you know, dismantled. Right. Each of the states could raise could yeah. protests in response. And uh, Rep- Republicans had to respond by, responded by rallying in a way to address the concerns of corporations by supporting corporation tax. So, to, and uh, there's a quote, I believe, by one of the Republican Party leaders who says, in order to defeat the income tax uh, rules, it would support the corporate tax. You know, let's not push on the individuals, let's mm. push it to these big companies, which was like 1% of net income above $5,000. Mm. And so you had this new corporate tax legislation, which resembled an 1890s tax, but instead it was, instead of a flat 2%, it was graduated. So mm-hmm. it's actually worse than yeah. the old one. And it introduced in 1909, the 16th Amendment, that is Congress can levy an income tax without apportioning it among the states on the basis of population. Mm. So, you know, they had this civil war where they had states' rights, right? Yep. Well, you also had the slavery bit. Yeah. For the South, it was states' rights. Yeah, from, the North, that was from their perspective, yep. From the North, it was slavery. Yeah. And so now you have the 16th Amendment. Congress, yeah. the federal government, mm. can levy a tax from the, the population without consulting the states, yep. each of the individual states. To the winner, to the victor goes the spoils. Like, I said, like essentially, if... I think that delving in, if we delve into the Civil War, the perspectives of North and South and why that conflict was there, I think there's a lot of nuance. Lot of very, there's a very interesting level of nuance in there that we could delve into. But essentially, from the South's perspective of, if we take the South's point of view in that this is a federal government that is forcing their will down upon the individual states, the, from their perspective, the North won that conflict, so they then are allowed to crack down on the states and do whatever they want or the federal government can do that by default now with that said i think that i think any if you talk if you talk to most people uh civil war was there was slavery was a major contributing if not the contributing factor of why that conflict exists i think it's also important to point out going yeah that was a that was a gross violation because it betrayed a lot of other principles not just uh states rights it betrayed a lot of other principles that uh, were being trampled on by slavery. So, this 16th Amendment mm. is now a tool that the government can use to increase its credit. Yeah. Because they can go to creditors and go, hey, we have this much income, or this much money that we can throw around. But we can just yes. tax it from the people. Yeah. But it's also interesting because the, the revolution was that we didn't, no taxation. No taxation of the representation. And so they fought against the British because mm. the people were felt that. They were being represented appropriately yeah. by the British mm. when the British were trying to levy money to get uh, fight in a European wars yeah. in, in the Napoleonic wars, right? So, so that was occurring. Yeah, or was it Napoleonic wars? I think it was. It was one of the European wars, right? Basically, it was a war with France. That's right. why. Yeah. So, because because Britain had defended Ameri- the, the colonies, the American colonies from the French, and then they had won. France, France had, had to go home, and then 
Britain turned around and went, hey, America, we're broke. We defended you. Can you pay us some money? And America went, no. Well, but then also, I believe the UK was spending money in a lot of the money. It was being redistributed around. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, it was being the wealth was, or money was being pulled out of the American colonies and being sent to Britain, and it was to benefit the Brit- the British Crown. Yeah. But America was looking and going, well, hang on, where that money is not being spent directly to benefit us, so why should it leave our borders? Yeah. Well, and, and what they what they were asking for was not that they didn't want. To, I don't think that they didn't want to pay taxes uh, inherent like at all. It's that they wanted a say. They wanted a say in it. And Britain was going, no, you're the colon- you're one of the colonies. You listen to us. We give you the marching orders. Uh, so, anyway, uh, so, uh, so, con- so, amend- so constitutional amendments. So. Yeah. Well, now government can increase its yeah income yep. by getting a tax amongst all the people, and we'll without, see that without being, going to the states. Yeah, yeah. And, we, and we can see that being used later on. Yeah. Uh, you had the labor wars and war wage bargains. So you had the railway strike again, 1916, 1917. Again, railway is that big means of transporting logistics. Yep. They were the big tech. Uh, they demanded a reduction in daily work hours from 10 to 8 without reduction in pay. Mm-hmm. They want to increase in 1.5 times pay rate for overtime. And then you had the, yeah, so the media said, calling it the greatest labor war, uh-huh. the greatest attack on the capital that has ever been maneuvered in history. So very crisis. Crisis-y language, language, yeah, here. yeah. It's a crisis. Mm. Well, essentially, it's it's the us versus them mentality. It's riling up different groups of the population to be at each other's throats, which, funny enough, is exactly what's happening. It's still happening today. President Wilson, President Wilson wanted to intervene and appointed or packed two more members to the Interstate Commerce Commission, and he asked Congress to develop labor laws, which is the Adamson Act, and it went to the Supreme Court and was passed five to four. And overall, there was an end to individual wage bargaining, right? So now this contract, this employee contract mm. between you and the employer now involves government. Yeah. Right? It has to be consulted and yeah. conformed to the Adamson Act. Mm. Um, there's no more this sacred unit. It's, yeah. it's, not, a, it's not a government's business mm. between you and, and, and yeah. the boss and how you want to pay me. Mm. Which again, it, it offers a framework for protection so the worker isn't exploited. But at the same token, you go, well, if I want to go to work for, rail, let's say, railway station A or railway company A, and they're willing to pay me a dollar an hour, and I go, well, I, I know that my work is worth more than that, or I want to earn more than that, and railway, sta- railway company B over there is going to pay me $2 an hour, I'll go work for them. The, the principle of that is that railway company A, the, the railway company A then either needs to go and look and go, okay, I need to... Be able to attract workers more either by paying them more, make the make the, or make the conditions more palatable. Because I think it's something really important is there was a lot of abuse that was happening with the workers or to the workers because the conditions and the pay were so miserable. So there was there was a again that, that the push and pull between freedom and security. There because there was no security, the the, com- the companies could do whatever they wanted with impunity. And there was no real way to move around that. But I also see this as a double-edged sword because... Oh, without a doubt. In, in, if you're the big company wants to quash out the small company, yeah. all you have to do is say, hey, small company, you're not conforming to the Adamson Act. Mm. We are. But then the Adams, you know, small companies don't have that operating margin 
yeah. to operate effectively mm. as well as fulfill all these requirements That's of right. paying you know, superannuation, whatever it is, yeah. all these hours, overtime pay. Yeah. They are relying on the small guys to help build them to a certain position yeah. uh, and, and grow mm. whilst very operating on a very thin margin. Yeah. And so the big companies can just crush the small companies by exactly. saying, "Hey, you're complying." And you've got, and you've got this. We're going to leverage government legis. We're going to leverage government legis- legislation to bury our our opposition, our, our opponents. Looking at, it, I don't know. There's necessarily a a solution out of this where everyone wins. There's going to be some form of loser here. Well, once you make a rule, it's a new game. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right. We talk about, you know. It's now no longer sacred between you and your boss. It mm. now involves this other third party. Uh, what else was introduced? So you had the uh, 1913 introduction of the Federal Reserve System, which was the banker's bank, to prevent banks from collapsing. Mm. Uh, you also had draft laws for World War One. So you had a shift in labor policy, which becomes utilized later down the track in World mm. War Two, which is basically cheap labor, mandatory service to government for price-fixed salary. <laughs> You might think that's a bit extreme, but you know, that, that is effectively what it is from an economics point of view. You're shifting labor from private to public. Yeah. And the and public sector or in the drafts mm. in sense, kind of sense, the government pays whatever it determines during yeah. that crisis. So I guess my thoughts is that, you know, this might stifle innovation, right? Mm. Necess- necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And we know that the aerospace industry would be developed. Mm. Uh, money used to regulate the railway railway labor hours could be used elsewhere, right? So, you know, 19, the Wright brothers they you know set up their the airplane during that period. Oh, I would love to see H and S or H and S have a look at that. <laughs> it's like you want to do what to your workers? Oh, I want to strap them to a plane and fly them off a cliff and see if they fly. Yeah. What? <laughs> and so you know, all this fight about railway, right? Mm. You think about it this way, so. You know, the Adam Sack would have to be regulated by mm. somebody. Yeah. It could be Department of Human Services, whatever. Mm. Well, essentially making sure that it, you need some form of bureaucracy to make sure that this new law is actually being honoured and respected. Yeah, audited. That kind yeah. Of stuff. But could those dudes, right, order money spent on those people, mm. could they be spent on developing the aerospace industry? Yeah. Because rather than fighting over labour hours for well, railways, mm. right, just let the system, let the supply and demand forces mm. uh, force the the mm. railways to, you know, negotiate and say, okay, let's just increase ticket prices because mm. people are now demanding uh, more wages. Well, that would increase necessity yeah. for alternate means of transport. Yep. And then that would help facilitate and but it does develop not, but it the does aerospace not, industry. But that wouldn't do anything for the railway worker. Who is at this point they can the they are operating under uh, very difficult working conditions and very low pay, so just to, I don't think it works necessarily to say oh we'll, another industry another industry will inevitably would inevitably in the free in a free market pure free market essentially call it a board game essentially a new industry might might emerge that is more competitive but it does nothing for the actual human. Sitting in uh, sitting on the railway line, working away, does it? But what happened there? What you know, mm. the railway was that they fired all the people who went on strike. Yeah, and had these new people, right? Mm. What did those old people, you know, want to negotiate? Then you know, well, eventually they negotiate and say, "Well, I can't keep firing people forever." Yeah, um, maybe we'll increase some benefits. We'll mm. keep firing because you know, firing 
costs a lot of money well, to administrate un- and hire people. Unemployment. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually, the people can increase the price of their of the contract. Mm. You know, do you have to put that legislation in place? I guess that's that's that that again that's that given pull. So it's an interesting question though. You know, towards this period, uh, you have an increase in progress progressivism towards the welfare state um, mm. by the the presidents. You know, Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Mm. Uh, the ideas were refuted in the 1890s, but the ideology and narrative persisted and grew in the 1900s. So that when so that these people came to power, they could mm. uh, seize the opportunity. So government was posed or ready to make changes, and the crisis gave them political opportunity to change. Uh, it weakened the opposition because you know no the opposition's like you know it's a crisis right yeah how, how if you're going to oppose the idea he's like well what are you going to do you're going to make that crisis worse yeah yeah uh, so it makes them look apathetic yeah. or you know lack ap- empathy there's no time to discuss we've got to respond yeah to idea. this is uh, part one that's yeah. finished so how about we take a break and then we go into part two sounds good If you like this episode and podcast, please like and share with your friends and subscribe. You can reach us at thefireindesert at gmail.com or Twitter at fireindesert. Music is Outfoxing the Fox by Kim McLeod at incomtech.com. And thank you for listening to The Fire in the Desert, conversations about life, culture, and society.